and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. This week, we are looking back again to the war in Ukraine and the much-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive. Earlier this week, the battle for Bakhmut entered a new phase as Russia announced its control over the city. There are questions about whether Russian forces can hold this position, uh, but the announcement marks the most significant territorial advance that Russia has had since last summer. Importantly, Ukrainian-aligned paramilitary groups also conducted a raid on the Russian region of Belgorod in southern Russia. The raid is the most dramatic instance to date of bringing the war into Russian territory, and it follows on the heels of the drone incident striking the Kremlin earlier this month. These developments come as the G7 meeting in Japan spelled more trouble for Russia as Zelensky secured additional military and financial aid from G7 countries. Most notably, the United States promised to train Ukrainian pilots on F-16 fighter jets. To help us take stock of where things stand, we are very pleased to welcome Gustav Gressel to the podcast. Gustav, welcome to you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Gustav is a senior, follow, a senior policy fellow with the Wider Europe Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. His area of expertise focuses on Russia, Eastern Europe, and defense policy. Okay, so um, Gustav, before we jump into some of the specifics that I mentioned in the introduction, I always like to start these episodes looking at Ukraine on asking our guests to give us a sense of where we are in the arc of the story. Um, so from your view, kind of what, where are we in this moment in the war? How would you describe uh, the current situation? Well, we are in the preparatory phase of Ukraine's counteroffensive. Uh, so after more than one year of war, Russian troops are again exhausted. Um, they're again overstretched. Uh, Russia has lost a lot of its military equipment, so uh, the time, of course, to attack them is uh, is right. Uh, Ukraine has received additional supplies from the West, not overwhelmingly a lot, but still sufficient to conduct an offensive operation. Um, now Ukraine tries to explore uh, where to, to strike. Uh, when to strike to to complete the logistical preparations, which I think in the West a lot of people underestimate. I mean, the number of troops that are getting on the move are are quite substantial. We are we are talking about at least twelve brigades. Uh, the Bundeswehr, for comparison, the German Bundeswehr has ten brigades. If if you count the German, French, and a German Dutch brigade as as part of the Bundeswehr, so we are <clears throat> we are talking about a lot of a lot of soldiers, a lot of tanks. A lot of vehicles uh, that will uh, need a lot of ammunition and a lot of fuel. Um, and they try to set the preconditions for this offensive by trying to distract uh, Russian forces, trying to force Russia to stretch out reserves, um, trying to diminish the opponent's ability to react to any uh, offensive by striking at supply depots, at command posts, uh, by degrading the lines of communications like attacks on railroads, uh, explosion of bridges, all, all this kind of stuff. Uh, this is the preparatory phase. We'll probably see the offensive rolling out over the summer. Um, there's also sort of this understanding uh, the summer season probably will be Ukraine's um, because even if Russia, for example, calls for another round of partial mobilization, uh, it takes time to train soldiers. It takes time to form new units, etc. 
Uh, even if Putin would do that now, Ukraine would still have several months ahead where they, they could uh, use the Russian weakness for the advantage. Um, so after that, I think Ukraine will make territorial gains. Uh, however, I don't foresee the possibility of sort of a complete victory. So the war will go on after this. Um, I think the the prospect of another partial mobilization on Russia's side is there at least to to sort of hold whatever then is left <clears throat> for them uh, and to try to to protract the war until at least the presidential elections um, and uh, maybe a change of mood uh, in the West, which Putin seems to be hoping for. Yeah, so I want to come back to the counteroffensive and some of our expectations, but maybe first we can just take care of some of these recent events and just kind of talk about kind of how you see their significance. And so number one is Bakhmut, and we definitely we had the Russian announcement that they had uh, captured the city. And so I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about the significance of that. I mean, I think there's general consensus that kind of at a strategic level, it's not terribly significant um, in terms of shaping other battlefield dynamics, but is it symbolically important for Russia? Is this something that the Kremlin has gone out of their way to make a big deal out of, to convince their public that things maybe aren't as bad as they seem? Or I guess, how how, how do you think about this very long grinding um, and, you know, horrific fight around Bakhmut and, and where we are now with that? I think symbolically, um, the victory uh, in Bakhmut, uh, or if one cannot call it that way, is is important for, for some parts of, of the Russian political establishment. The battle for Bakhmut took longer than the battle for Stalingrad. Um, it's It was a very bloody nine-month battle. Um, it has been in the news all over the world. So for Russia's image uh, in other countries, uh, you, you basically know Bakhmut pretty much everywhere. Uh, it is important to kind of check the box. However, militarily, the significance of Bakhmut was for Ukrainians to to pin down as many Russian forces as they are to force them into close quarter battles in in the city. Um, to drag this on as long as it takes to bleed the Russians out. Whether they have really achieved that um, is an open discussion. There are a lot of different estimations about loss rates around Bakhmut um, because there have been several different phases in this battle. In some, sort of Russia tried to push uh, in the center of the city uh, at the beginning and then at the end, predominantly using Wagner mercenaries, um, there have been more successful phases for Russia where they made advances surrounding Bakhmut and then basically degrading Ukrainian defenses by shelling them from the hills surrounding the city. Um, now Ukraine tries to basically recapture the, the hills around them to do the same to the Russians. Uh, so although, of course, uh, the city is captured, it's not completely over. Um, and I think sort of Bakhmut still fulfills this fixing purpose uh capturing the hills around Bakhmut or some of the hills not by far not all uh for Ukraine is is another tactic to pin down Russian forces to not allow them to move away sizable forces to still draw the attention of Russian reserves and high value infantry 
to the city. Um, and if they are there, they can't be elsewhere. And that's basically the, the main purpose of, of this entire fight. And uh, I mean, on that same kind of logic is the raid in southern Russia in the region of Belgorod. Um, I guess, presumably, some of the rationale behind that might have been similar, that you're now forcing Russia to potentially have to defend its border there, um, and that could divert forces away from front lines. Is that how you see the purpose of the raid? I think there's other factors, including, you know, the psychological impact and exposing the regime as, as, as incompetent. But talk to us a little bit about this raid. Was it surprising to you? Um, and what purpose do you think, how does it fit into the preparations for the counteroffensive? Well, I think you described it exactly right. So, um, uh, of course, the Ukrainians had fun trolling the Russians by, you know, mimicking the Russian rhetoric of 2014, that these are sort of local insurgents, the Ukraine has nothing to do with that, and uh, all of that. But the ultimate purpose of that is to force Russia to stronger guard militarily its northern border. Uh, it's sort of the northern Ukrainian, the southern Russian border, pretty much a mirror imaging what Russia did prior to its winter offensive with extensive maneuvers in Belarus, um, <clears throat> with troop movements along this northern border where they made Ukrainians nervous whether uh, whether or not Russia would strike from the north again. And uh, domestically, I mean, for Putin, it's extremely embarrassing to have this kind of raids into Russia. So he needs to react for, for domestic purposes. He can't leave this long border completely undefended and he has to uh, have some reserves there in order to prevent these kind of um, uh, shirk measures in the future. But of course, militarily speaking, um, this is the worst thing um, for the Russian army to be pinned down in in waiting uh, along this large border uh, and, and stretch out their forces even further. Um, let, let's let's uh, let's go into the um, the inner world of the Kremlin just for a second, uh, and uh, the and the knives are out. You can tell there's a lot of skullduggery going on, uh, and but but talk about of the Wagner Group, Prokosin, and uh, as well as some of the other figures that are stalking around the Kremlin hallways at night, making um, making the. Uh, President Putin very nervous that uh, he's on a hit list somewhere. That, that's, uh, what are you picking up, particularly the Wagner Group and this this uh, internecine warfare between the the Russian military and the Ministry of Defense and Bergozin and uh, and Putin seems to be you know kind of um, aiding and abetting that kind of relationship. It seems to having all of his potential. Uh, opponents back on their heel is a, is a good thing and having this turmoil happen in the Kremlin what what are you what are you seeing there is is this this image i just portrayed is that not really what's going on yeltsin's got everybody by the throat uh, yeltsin <laughs> uh putin has everybody by the by the throat and there's nothing that's going to happen uh uh in terms of his his uh, hold on power or are we really starting to see this uh, a breakup of that uh, of uh, of Putin's ability to hold uh, things to where he wants them to be. That suddenly there's some other players that that really should be making him nervous. Well, to be honest, I'm I'm a really bad criminologist. So uh, <clears throat> the the sort of like Kadri, my good colleague, uh, she always catches each and every uh, uh, whisper uh, in the Kremlin. 
uh, I try to give my best. So I I think Peter Goshen is clearly having a political career in mind. And I think the handover today in Bakhmut that he kind of extracts himself from the bit of fighting, uh, at least by name, I think uh, a large part of the convicts will stay there. Let's just take another hat off another army-sponsored um, private military company. But that is consciously a conscious decision because from now on things will get sour for Moscow and for Russia. And he wants to uh, distance his own brand name from uh, the, the non-successful phase of this war. Um, so there's certainly there is something in the bushes. Uh, I don't think that a kind of coup or or immediate uh, coup, uh, sort of removal of Putin is something that is in the cards, or that seems to be obvious from right now. But on the other hand, it is plainly obvious to uh, most Russians that Putin is old, that he will not biologically hold on to power forever. Uh, and he hasn't settled his succession. Um, the the fact that Russia is this kind of personalized regime now that he has basically hollowed out each and every institution in the country uh, and the last remaining institutions that were strong and functional, the intelligence services have embarrassed themselves with this war. Um, I... I guess that if he departs from uh, from the planet, uh, there will be some fight for succession. But but I think it's still out uh, for for still some years. Nevertheless, uh, I mean the minions make their preparations. Yeah, I'll get. I'll, can I do a quick um, plug for CNES? Our Transatlantic Forum on Russia has a domestic stability tracker. So we put the first one out um, around uh, the one-year mark of the war, and we've got the next uh, stability tracker coming out. And Gustav, I think you're kind of right on, which is yeah, there is more elite in fighting. The public divisions are a little bit greater than they have been in the past, but so far there's really no viable alternative to Putin. And it's hard to imagine still at this phase in the war, um, how, how that changes. Um, but I do think it is remarkable with Prigozhin. I don't know if you caught his most recent interview that was extremely negative of how the Kremlin has prosecuted this war. And he basically said, like, look, the Kremlin was trying to denazify Ukraine. And what have we done? This war has basically legitimated Ukraine as a country. Everyone in the whole entire world knows the country of Ukraine and believes in its legitimacy. The Kremlin said we were going to demilitarize Ukraine. And if anything, we've just, you know, contributed to one of the strongest armies in the world. So, you know, on all accounts, according to what Putin's objectives are, it's been a failure. So the fact that he's out there so vocally critical of the war um, does seem like an interesting development. But as you said, Gustav, it's really hard to imagine um, how that in, in the in the short term or in the immediate term translates into a very credible threat to Putin. But I mean, we, yeah, go ahead. we should remember that Girkin was actually also very outspokenly negative about this. Uh, even some aspects of the previous war, the war in Donbass, uh, the insufficient support, etc., the the chaos in in organizing the rebellion, etc., and a lot of people back then speculated why was he allowed to to say such things in in an environment so tightly controlled as as Russia. 
But there seems to be an echo chamber. Um, um, certain people are allowed to criticize Putin and they have backers that that make them kind of immune. Um, I haven't solved the mystery why and, and sort of how the constellations behind this run. But uh, yeah, there is sort of a room for patriotic criticism uh, on, on Putin himself. Yeah. And, and I think one of the factors that will shape this the most is obviously Ukraine's success on the battlefield. And in, I mean, you know, the better that Ukraine does, the more um, I will be watching the stability dynamics in Russia, because I do think a Ukrainian victory or some, you know, a, a lot of success will um, create new challenge, not not new, but um, amplify the challenges that Putin faces. So using that as a transition back to the counteroffensive, can you talk to us about and we were talking about this a little bit before we hit record about why this counteroffensive won't be decisive. Because as you were talking about before, um, it does feel like there's a lot of attention, focus um, on the counteroffensive and perhaps expectations that once we get to the counteroffensive, we'll be able to enter into some phase of negotiations. And so tell us a little bit about why that is misguided thinking. Well, sort of we, we of course, as we witness the preparation to the counteroffensive, we should re be reminded that the forces Ukraine has reserved for that, uh, although they are sizable and they're of course large and and larger, only the portion that does the counteroffensive larger than uh, most land armies in Europe. Uh, that if you look into sort of the, the books, the manuals for, for military operation, they, they basically are enough to liberate one and a half oblasts against stiff military resistance. And that is a chance that is, you know, warfare is something that is dynamic, that depends on so many people. Um, things can go bad. Things can go good. Uh, you can have luck. Uh, uh, you can have bad luck. <clears throat> Even good commanders. I mean, we say, yeah, this kind of offensive action, battles of movement, uh, dynamic war situations favor Ukrainians because they have better leadership. That's true. But that's a chance, not a certainty. Uh, even good commanders can have a bad day. Uh, can have faulty informations about the enemy, make the wrong decision, and, and things go go bad. But sort of the, the forces are there, and they can make a difference for Ukraine if they would sort of in the most optimistic phase, like reach uh, the isthmus of of Crimea uh, and and regain access to uh, the Sea of Azov. That would shorten the front line for Ukraine considerably. That would sort of ease the the pain of maintaining such a long front in terms of having to uh having to have so many troops on the front having to expend uh, uh so many shells daily etc that's that's all true um but uh i don't see this kind of war winning offensive because one and a half oblasts there are still at least two remaining and then there's crimea uh, which is difficult to uh, to attack militarily from Ukraine's perspective because they don't have a an airborne capability or a uh, maritime amphibious capability to to circumvent the few land connections and landlines that uh, that there are from the Ukrainian mainland to to the peninsula. So 
Um, overall, the war will still be there. Uh, of course, it will be embarrassing for Putin to have lost, but a lot of embarrassing things happened to the Russian armed forces this war, and none of them have made uh, Russian resistance crumble and collapse. <clears throat> none of them have made Putin reconsider his war aims. In fact, he's basically still um, unwilling to negotiate and unwilling to give up any of his major war aims. He, uh, he of course, now knows that he will not achieve the victory he dreams of through his own strength, but he's still uh, certain, uh, confident that he has a fair chance of being delivered this victory by the weakness of the West and by a change in administration in the US or by infights uh, amongst Western countries. And as a good old KGB officer who believes in Marxism and the <clears throat> sort of uh, collapse of capitalism through its own inner contradictions, he, he lives in that world where that will happen. And he reads our political systems and our infighting in the way uh, the Soviet Union has told him to read them. And uh, that, unfortunately, uh, increases his hopes that he might be served that victory. Before we move on to a different topic, there's a question that I get a lot, which basically asks, is Ukraine like in a difficult position no matter what happens in the counteroffensive? So if they are wildly successful or very successful in the counteroffensive, would that be the moment at which uh, the United States and perhaps other allies might nudge Ukraine to the negotiating table? Because as the Biden administration has, I think, described its strategy or its vision, it's always been, we want to put Ukraine in the best possible position on the battlefield so that they will be in the best possible position at the negotiating table. So in a good case, might that be the time that Washington or other European allies say, well, coming off this victory, you should be able to, that will give you leverage in these negotiations and now is the time. But then the same argument or the same um, kind of push or momentum might also um, be present in a situation where Ukraine doesn't do as well as expected. And then in that situation, it's like, well, gosh, we just gave billions of dollars of military assistance. We're never or not never, but it's going to be a very long time until we see this kind of accumulation of military aid again. And if it didn't actually produce results, well, now is the time that we perhaps should get serious about negotiation. So is Ukraine caught between a rock and a hard place on this? Or what, what do you see the position of, of allies coming off the back of this counteroffensive? It's a very good question because I think much of the cohesion in the West on uh, this issue has been basically enforced by Moscow, by Putin's total unwillingness to negotiate. Um, if Putin, even just for tactical reasons, or what I think that would be the sole purpose for tactical reasons to kind of gain time to uh, regain strength, uh, order his troops, um, resupply, etc., would actually be willing to negotiate. I don't know how unified the West would be. There would certainly be some European countries who say now we have to increase pressure on Ukraine to make concessions, uh, territorial concessions, etc. There will be certainly um, European countries that say um, certainly not. That's the worst thing we can do. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I have to say. 
there seems to be quite some divisions within Washington on the matter. I think there are sort of in the State Department, uh, people would rather tend towards being cautious, um, uh, interpreting some noises from the White House. They would rather look forward for this. So this is an is an enormously tricky and interesting question. Uh, the problem on this is I I think our our understanding or our own preconcept how Putin is ought to look at the war um, is favoring a kind of um, settlement uh, idea that Putin might exploit just for tactical reasons uh, because he is not willing to to accept things short of victory uh he but he might be willing to accept a pause in the fighting uh and that would for us be one of the worst situations because then we have the kind of sort of are oh, we have we are over the hill uh uh thinking in the west uh while russia is is aiming for a continuation of hostilities uh and uh, we have we have had that situation for the past eight years uh, and I hope we don't fall into that trap again. No, I, I agree with that. And that is a, a great question that we're going to we're going to increasingly hear. And I, I just think of a couple things. One is uh, a great schism in, in Europe uh, between Central Eastern Europe, who would never accept a pause or anything else. And, you know, as you were pointing out, Gustav, the, you know, some of the other probably the older allies wanting to to have a pause. And another problem that comes with that is if there's a real charm offensive by Putin, uh, where he's starting to make all the right noises about wanting to negotiate, et cetera, um, there'd be a lot of pressure on the West and particularly the United States to stop the assistance. Uh, in other words, hey, we got a window here for peace. U.S., won't you hold off on the F-16s, hold off on these other things so that we don't uh, scare Putin away from the negotiating table. And and what happens is uh, we, we can't use that pause to get the Ukraine army stronger. And all the while, the Russians are going to be using that pause to get themselves, uh, you know, repaired and restored. So there's a there. I, I think something on those lines certainly is the worst of all worlds uh, where we would find ourselves rent politically in uh, Europe and in the transatlantic relationship uh, over how to deal with a pause. Uh, that would be, that would be really, that would be difficult. Um, but let's, let's talk about expectations a little bit. We, uh, before we did our podcast, we were talking about the expectations in Washington and uh, in the West about this offensive and uh, what people are expecting to see. Uh, and we've been saying that in warfare, and as you pointed out, Gustav already, uh, you know, as the, famous American boxer said, everyone has a plan until you get hit in the face. Uh, and and uh, so we're going to find ourselves potentially in that situation uh, when this offensive starts. So uh, I think the expectations for some people are based on what happened last year with Car uh, with Kharkiv and, and the uh, Ukrainian offensive there that uh, was pretty spectacular. Uh, and then people are going to expect that. And if they don't see that this time around, Again, we're going to have political pressures, Andrea, as you were talking about, about going to the negotiating table or something along those lines. So how can we deal with those expectations publicly um, so that we don't run into political problems uh, down the road? How can we get uh, the public aware of how bloody this is going to be 
and how it likely won't be spectacular. Uh, and then the second expectation is on what the F-16s mean or don't mean. And just a quick point on that, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. hasn't said anything really more than allowing a third country transfer of uh, F-16s owned by European countries. So the consortium run by the Dutch won't necessarily involve U.S. aircraft. There hasn't been a decision on that yet. Uh, and we've agreed to let others do training. And so I, 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 it's not clear if we're going to do training as well. Maybe we will. But I know in Poland right now, I think they've already started some training uh, on a limited basis with Ukraine. Uh, and the U.K., of course, has talked about training, but they don't fly the F-16, but they're going to, I guess, do basic pilot training or something like that. Anyway, there's some expectations out there that these F-16s are uh, – Real game changer, silver bullet, uh, and uh, I won't take up all the time here, but, um, you know, F-16s uh, in the limited numbers uh, that we're going to be looking at and, and with the limited pilot proficiency, they're not going to be a game changer, certainly not in the next uh, year or so, uh, as it's going to take a, a while to get uh, the uh, Ukraine up and operational in terms of these F-16s. So how do we deal with expectations, Gustav? What would you recommend both in Europe and in the United States? Well, I think some of the officials have already tried to engage in expectation management by highlighting the defensive preparations that Russia has undertook, by, by highlighting the uh, uh, holes in, in the Russian-controlled rear that might that will make this offensive certainly difficult, uh, d uh, different from what we saw last year. Um, how difficult it will be, we'll see then, because a lot of the Russian troops uh, inserted into those lines are, are, are quite untested. But um, the problem, of course, is uh, we kind of have to keep support for Ukraine up in public opinion uh, uh, at the same time as conducting expectation management. Um, and, and that is arguably difficult uh, by kind of sort of cheering and not overdoing that. Uh, we have... Concerning the F-16s, uh, I fully agree. I mean, it was basically a repetition of the whole Leopard saga, the, the German main battle tanks. Well, um, I think this was more European debate uh, than than uh, than a US debate, but we had uh, kind of two different camps. One said, if you deliver Leopard, we're going to enter nuclear doomsday. And the other camp said, if you... If you deliver Leopard, Ukraine will win the entire war within a couple of months. And basically both were uh, not true. Uh, Leopard 2s, just as F-16s, will give Ukraine the capability to maintain capabilities they already have, like having a tank force, an armored force, uh, having a fighter force uh, with in instruments where we control the logistics, the supply chain, where we don't have these painful negotiations with all kinds of third countries, whether they would uh, be willing to uh, hand over some kind of ammunition and some kind of missiles to arm them, etc. All that makes it easier logistically, but it's it's an issue that maintains capabilities, not not kind of provides silver bullets, uh, and. And that, uh, and that is arguably difficult because also these defense goods are kind of moments of national pride, to be to be very honest. I mean, Germans kind of expect the Leopard to be the super-duper weapon because they have been building them, and they, of course, all wish Ukraine victory, um, most of them. Uh, and the same goes for the US and the F-16. It's a highly symbolic 
kind of emblem of, of American engineering besides being a fighter plane. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it is tricky. I, I just hope that podcasts like these uh, make a contribution to educate people that um, uh, this war is, is not so easy fought and won than, than it is on a computer game. No, it's a really good point. And maybe just as a final question, and I know you've sprinkled this all the way throughout, but we've talked a little bit about kind of the narrative in Washington, the fixation on the counteroffensive, concerns about pressure to go to the negotiating table at the end of it. To kind of summarize, I think what our narrative in the United States around the war looks like at this moment in time. But can you give listeners a sense of what the 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 narrative or the debate is inside Germany at the moment. You know, how are politicians, how is the media talking about the war and where we are? Is there the same fixation on the counteroffensive and questions about what come after? Or, you know, give us a sense of what that narrative looks like at the moment. It's pretty much the same, roughly, uh, as in the US. So there's there's a huge expectations on the counteroffensive. Um, there is in in a lot of quarters, especially in the chancellery, just as in the White House, uh, the simmering expectation that uh, after a successful counteroffensive, Putin uh, should go to the negotiating table uh, without a lot of concrete plans of what that would actually mean and how. Uh, the West should react to whatever uh, might be put forward then. Um, there is very little planning of what has to happen after the offensive in terms of weapons deliveries, uh, in terms of uh, further military assistance, long-term support, um, especially if the counteroffensive is more costly to Ukraine in terms of men and equipment than uh, anticipated and how do we replenish uh, the losses that that Ukraine might might suffer during this counteroffensive? Um, this is basically blinded out, unfortunately. Uh, there are, of course, uh, wiser politicians. Uh, the Foreign Office in Germany, just as the State Department, is uh, more skeptical. I also have to positively mention the new German Defense Minister, uh, who. Uh, thinks of this as a larger and more long-term effort than a, a lot of politicians would wish for. And, and we have basically one story that that catches it perfectly. So uh, Germany has donated now 18 Leopard 2A6 tanks to Ukraine. Um, yes, it's a ridiculously small number. Um, and they have now ordered uh, 18, to, 18 new ones to replace those. Um, the minister... Uh, actually wants to order 120 or, or even more than 120 because he thinks that uh, Ukraine needs more of these tanks all the time. And uh, he now needs to place orders in advance to produce replacements to be able to deliver them to Ukraine. While other ministries finance, of course, for financial reasons, um, um, but also uh, in other quarters of the political spectrum, uh, say, no, well, that's premature. Um, I, I guess that they've placed an option now for these 120 tanks and we will have exact this debate in autumn then when the counteroffensive has happened, when attrition has occurred, when losses uh, have been cashing in, when the war is not over, uh, to think again and like, ah, well, shouldn't, have, shouldn't we have thought about giving them more vehicles, more ammunition 
uh, back then shouldn't we have thought about how to uh, make good on these losses back then uh, yeah well some people have been thinking about that unfortunately um, they were a constructive minority uh, so so that's that's kind of the overall mood um, otherwise I think in Germany, there has been a huge change of mind in, in most parts of the population. Um, Germany was quite naive when it came to Russia. This 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 naivety has gone. Um, there's a relatively stable popular support for the military assistance to Ukraine. Um, the problem is you need to transfer a positive sentiment into a tangible uh, industrial administrative, political, um, technological strategy to really support Ukraine. That's just a patchwork um, of what we do now. Um, we haven't we haven't really fetched out how over the long run, because Ukraine will need support, first of all, because the war will last, unfortunately, longer than a lot of Europeans uh, think at the day. And even after the war, Ukraine will be uh, needing our assistance uh, because it will be a country that is exhausted and destroyed by war uh, to to maintain security uh, and there is there is a bit of thinking about that but not all too much well i thought for a second you were going to end on a positive note talking about strong public support which is i don't know if that we can quite say the same thing about here in the united states that's another kind of concerning indicator that it's ticking down um, I was about to wrap up, but Jim's got a teeny little follow-on. Thank you, Andrea, very much. I, I this is real short, but you you said something, uh, Gustav, that I just wanted to follow up on. You know, you said that there was some naivete in Germany about Russia, and um, I think you could set, make the point in the West. In a lot of ways, there was some naivete, but but when it comes to Merkel and to German officials, do you, was it naivete or was it the wishful thinking that? Um, that that in fact uh, they were aware uh, that uh, germ uh, that Russia could could absolutely turn on them if their plan about uh, buying um, energy from uh, from from Russia and uh, being able to export from uh, uh, you know being able to export more cheaply from Germany to other places uh, you know this kind of relationship that were this this transactional relationship that was being built with Russia that if this worked. Uh, then having uh, keeping uh, Russia kind of in the box, keeping Russia relatively friendly, relatively cooperative. But this is what had to be done. So in a sense, their eyes were wide open. They were rolling the dice that this plan would work, uh, understanding that if it doesn't work, there could be some bad things. And in fact, it didn't work. Uh, and and, uh, and but so was it naivete, do you think, or was it just a plan that went awry? Uh, but the but the folks who put the plan together uh, were you know realized that it could go awry and if it did it wouldn't be very good. I think by and large it was naivete. Um, so the the problem the problem I mean this is probably would deserve uh, two or three other podcast episodes so it could go long. Um, 
there was a faction that really pushed closer relationship with Russia on on the expense of security interests in the West. Uh, I I call them the Rapallo camp um, from from sort of the 1920s Treaty of Rapallo between the German Reich then and and the Soviet Union. Um, those were trying to frame the engagement strategy as a strategy that would tame Russia, although they they kind of knew that this was not the plan. And then it was a large part that bought into that for the reason of naivety and kind of lack of thinking about alternatives. Um, Merkel was certainly not naive when it came to Putin's intention, but she was utterly disinterested in the whole military dimension of the Russian-Ukrainian war. And she, she was not somebody who was who was who was even willing to listen to military ex- experts for longer than five minutes on this this was kind of um past stuff for her and that is that that kind of um blinded out parts of the reality of the entire puzzle where probably in the entire world people would think how could you um uh, going through the minutes of these meetings but but this was a kind of German particularity, I don't know how, how to say that this kind of living in a system that was really embedding the dream of the end of history uh, and sleepwalking through uh, dangerous times in in their own cloud and and perceptions about the world that just didn't live up to reality. Um, um, yeah. But on the other hand, um, if I have to end on a positive note, I, I said again uh, that the support for Ukraine is uh, throughout the the polls is fairly stable, uh, despite we are heading now into recession, despite of a lot of ups and downs politically. Uh, strikingly, the Minister of Defense is by far the most popular politician in entire Germany. Uh, so, uh, yeah, even... I mean, politicians don't understand a lot of things, but they understand one thing that is popular demand. Um, And uh, I think that's a positive note to end on. Uh, Popular demand to support Ukraine is there, certainly. Well, well done, Gustav, yes. (laughs) Thank you so much. That was very helpful. Sorry, Andrea, that was a little longer than I thought, but it was- No, no, that's okay. And it is a positive note to end on. I mean, I think, I mean, if- I think the 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 lesson or like the the key thing that's jumped out to me in this discussion and discussions we've had before is like we all understand that this is going to be a long war and now we just need the politicians and the planning the defense industrial base all of these things to kind of be aligned to that expectation so that we are prepared. Um, and so Gustav I very much appreciate your insights on all of that. I think it helps us understand really like what we're looking at and I mean, it's these kinds of conversations, hopefully, that are necessary to to pull the policy along um, so that we are prepared, uh, you know, on the other side of this counteroffensive as well. So thank you very much for your time. um, And hopefully we'll have an opportunity to do it again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.